Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University presents a lecture by Simon Goldhill entitled Sappho, Lincoln, and the Senate, picturing 19th century female desire. This is the second of two lectures delivered in conjunction with the Frankie seminar, Classicism and Modernity. As far as I'm aware, Sappho has been debated by the American Senate only once. The date was July 1866, and the occasion of the debate was the statue you see before you. This is the famous sculpture of Abraham Lincoln, which has pride of place in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. It's said to capture his rugged looks, as we call them. Uh, he wasn't a very cute guy. And the face was modelled shortly before he was assassinated. The statue was commissioned and dedicated after his assassination and became even more of a stirring memorial than the commissioners of the original bust had expected. It's a celebrated, if not a massively distinguished piece of public art. What is remarkable about this statue, however, and something that has not entered public consciousness as much as it deserves, is that the artist who was commissioned by the Senate for the decent sum of $10,000 in 1866 was an 18-year-old girl who'd never made a statue before. And it's this extraordinary story that leads to Sappho entering the Senate, and it's where I wish to start today. The 18-year girl in question was Lavinia Ream, always known as Vinnie. And if one were a cynical historian, the facts of Vinnie Ream's early life, like those of George Washington, Lincoln himself, or Davy Crockett, might make us suspect a good deal of mythology. But since the story I'm telling is about public representation, let's go with the story as it was spread, and indeed, as modern biographers such as they are, have been all too happy to rehearse. She was born in 1847 in Madison, Wisconsin, and she was brought up in a log hut. She claimed that uh, she learnt how to draw from native Indians in the countryside. She was a child of nature. She, her family ran the stagecoach stop where guests slept on the floor. She was from a poor family. She did, however, go to school at Christian College in Columbia, Missouri, and it was from this educational background, aged 14, that she got a job in Washington, one of the first women to be so employed by the American Postal Service during the Civil War in the Dead Letter Office. Her family had moved to Washington during the war, and in 1863 she went with the Missouri Congressman James Rowlands, a friend of the family, to the studio of the sculptor Clark Mills. She saw Mills modelling clay with his hands and said, I can do that. She was given some clay and proceeded to mould a medallion of the head of an Indian chief. So you can see how the playing with the Indians in the first place plays out in the story. And Mills was sufficiently impressed that he took her on part-time. And for the next three years, she made medallions and relief work, relief work, particularly of congressmen and other public figures who enjoyed hanging around the Mills studio, partly because Vinnie Ream was there. She was a strikingly attractive young woman, as you might have guessed from the story so far. He dressed in a rather exotic manner, and her clients from Congress were clearly deeply impressed with her artistic skills. In 1865, she wanted to make a bust of Lincoln. He refused the request immediately. But when a Senator Nesmith, who'd made the ask, said, 
She is a little Western girl, born in Wisconsin. She's poor and has talent, and we intend to encourage her in her work, in which we feel she would excel by giving her an order for a bust in marble. The president burst out. She is poor, is she? Well, that's nothing again her. Why don't you bring the girl up here? I'll sit to her for my bust. Uh, that, according to a speech Vinnie made late in life, was how the president sat for a 17-year-old unknown artist. She went on to describe the sitting in the most glowing terms, his face racked with anxiety from the pressures of office. She studying him carefully, ever conscious of the honour. He thought of his dead child. She, the child before him, approached him with filial reverence. So far, so early American history. This is a story of how Lincoln understood and supported the people about the democracy of American art. Well, when Lincoln was assassinated, the Senate commissioned a memorial statue, and to public amazement, they chose Vinnie Ream to do it. The time she had spent modelling senators and congressmen, plus the fact that she'd been working on the bust, no doubt helped. But fascinatingly, the commission was sold as a real piece of American ideology. This was a girl who'd grown up in the West. She was untainted by Europe and its degenerate ways, who was a true American girl of the soil whose poverty made her a figure of the people rather than a lackey of aristocratic patronage. This would be America's artist for America's president. The vote was 57 in favour and 7 against. And she walked into the Senate on the arm of General Sherman to the applause of the assembled politicians, which she coyly and disingenuously claimed to believe was all for the general. Later, gossip you can probably guess this, was that she had an affair with Sherman. But you would expect such gossip for a beautiful young artist and an older soldier. Sounds familiar. But the debate, <laughs> the debate before the vote in her favour was acrimonious. The problem was not so much that she had no experience of making statues, which you might have thought was kind of relevant, but the fact that she was a woman. You might as well place her on the staff of General Grant, exploded Mr. Sumner. Or put General Grant aside and put her on horseback in his stead. When one senator did raise the question of her inexperience, Nesmith retorted with a classic subruskinian nationalist plea. She was a young person who manifests intuitive genius and who is able to copy the work of nature without having perused the immense tomes and grand volumes of which the senator may boast. American hostility to intellectual life and to European intellectual life isn't just Mitt Romney, but is already up and running with a passion. Why did he not speak of our great American artists, railed Nesmith? Why is he constantly referring us to Europe? But the crucial debate, for my purposes, was a spat between Mr. Howard and Mr. McDougall with a squib from Mr. Cowan. Mr. Cowan, Mr. Howard, Having in view her sex, uh, the ideology is direct, right? having in view her sex, I shall expect a complete failure of this work. I would as soon think of a lady writing the Iliad of Homer. I should as soon think of placing her at the head of an army, a woman, for the conduct of a great campaign. Mr. Cowan yelled, they have done both. MacDougall, more restrained. Did you ever read the fragments of Sappho? I have read the fragments of Sappho. What do you say about that? That certainly doesn't prove that Sappho was capable of writing Homer's Iliad. <laughs> she exceeds Homer in many respects. 
In many respects, in erotic expression, she certainly exceeds Homer. Whether the present work would have a similar merit, I cannot say. When it comes to evaluating a woman's capabilities in art in 1866, Sappho, it seems, is the evident model. Her talents justify the appointment of Vinnie Ream. And what is the slur one could bring against such authority? Well, sex, of course. The erotic is something you shouldn't introduce into public art. And Mr. Howard was referring knowingly to the slurs about Vinnie Ream. How could a young woman get a commission without compromising her propriety and reputation? In this case, the slur made its way into the papers, who called her a fascinating dark-eyed damsel and suggested feminine wile must have won her the commission and women journalists were particularly horrible. But this time the slurs didn't work. Sappho, erotics and all, trumped the trump card of Homer. Like Sappho herself, Vinnie Ream became a figure to oppose to Homer, to war and to a self-consciously male way of doing things. Well, Vinnie Ream's most famous later piece is inevitably Sappho. Here is the sculpture that she made at, in Italy at exactly the same time that Lincoln was being finished. For Reem, Sappho is a demure poetess, elegantly draped with paper in one hand, pen in the other, hands crossed politely in front of her, lower by her feet, staring reflectively down into space for inspiration. It's a classic pose. Uh, when the Lincoln was unveiled, the New York Times, bless it, said, wondered whether he might not have looked better in a, in, in a, in a Greek clannis or a Roman toga. Um, but that's a different matter. Uh, for Reem, um, Sappho became a sort of ideal self-portrait of the artist. Working alone, idealised, inspired. And the scroll in her hand, which you can't read from here, is inscribed with a quotation from Greek from Sappho, which reads, I must die and no memory of me shall remain. It's a sort of suicide note, which for Reem had almost proved predictive. When she died, a copy of the statue was placed over her grave in Arlington, enforcing the identification. She'd married in 1878, had one boy, never worked again, as her husband, Captain Hoxie, forbade it. But she gave the occasional talk to students as a grand dame, in which she encouraged everyone to try the arts. Women have at last burst their bonds, she declaimed. They soar into the eternal. They now compete with men in every field, however complicated, and they win. Why then should a woman not be a sculptor? Her brain is as great, her thoughts as tender, her fingers as skillful as those of a man. There's something of a feminist hero about Vinnie Ream, despite Captain Hox's restraints on her later life. She came a long way from the log cabin in a classic example of American dream. Intuitive genius, child of nature, by her own efforts to reach the heights of bourgeois comforts, looking back at an artistic life which was, I quote, an ecstatic delight to my soul. That's the myth in all its glory. And for this, Sappho was her model, and the model through which her talents were debated in the Senate. So what was this 19th century Sappho? And how did she enter the public world of visual representation? I want to take you through some images today which haven't been put together before, rather surprisingly, although they clearly speak to each other, and suggest not only that Vinnie Ream gives us an important insight into how Sappho becomes a figure in the visual regime and discussions around the visual, but also how this embodied imagery has a surprisingly different vector from the prose and poetry that takes Sappho as a model in the same period. 
Let me begin with some other 19th century statues of Sappho. Here's an image by Prosper Depinay, an artist who grew up in Mauritius, but did much of his work in London. It was exhibited in 1895, at the end of the century, when Sappho has already become a particularly charged figure in the cultural world of fin de siècle London, and this, this is now in the Met in New York. And the piece is entitled Sappho Jalousie, uh, Jealousy. And as you can see, um, perhaps better on this one, uh, she has her lyre by her side, she's slouched on her hair, she's pulling desperately at the clothes around her heart, and her eyes stare painfully down again into space. This is a powerful piece of work, one of Depinay's best pieces, and it captures an image of Sappho as passionate, emotionally upset, and on her own. Her emotions here are turbulent in contrast to Vinnie Reem's Sappho, but there is no object for the feelings. Now, Jean-Jacques Pradier was a generation earlier. He was a pupil of Ingres, and he was winner of the Prix de Rome, and he was a good friend of Alfred de Musso, Victor Hugo, and Théophile Gautier. That is, he was right at the centre of a particularly trendy and louche Parisian artistic scene. His mistress was Juliette Drouet, a beautiful woman who held court in Pradier's studio to this artistic milieu. Not so long afterwards, she swapped and became Victor Hugo's mistress. We might expect a Sappho from Pradier that looks to the erotic or to the complexity of the social interactions that her poetry testifies. But here is his Sappho. Coy, demure, leg raised, eyes down, pen and paper laid aside in girlish reflection, and very much on her own. Open to our gaze, but not returning any look our way. Well, you might be thinking at this point, ah, that's hardly surprising. With a freestanding, classicizing image, statue, what would you expect? Well, actually, quite a lot. Here's Pradier's most famous sculpture. <laughs> a group of a satyr in Maynard in an embrace that uncomfortably combines the violent and the ecstatic. Oops, go back to that one. The sculpture caused a furore when it was exhibited in Paris, not least because it was immediately recognised that the faces were modelled on his mistress Drouet and himself. Right? Pradier knew how to do violent sexuality, group embraces, dangerously edgy representations of the classical past, using the classical to explore passionate feelings, the alibi or the veil, in this case too transparent, for the erotic in the dignity of the ancient. He can make some pretty hot stuff. So his choice for a demure, reflective, single figure of Sappho is a reading of how she should appear. It's striking to see a continuity from the 18-year-old backwards American girl in the USA through to the romantic artist with a capital R in smutty Paris. But there's a continuation in that image of the little poet on her own. Now, back at the turn of the century... Around 1800, the German artist Danneke knew Sappho could be sexy, but his statue is a classic example of the openness of a nude figure uh, to the voyeuristic gaze. This is the representation of woman as sex object rather than as subject. And from this angle, we're offered her torso exposed, her breasts and genitals in full view, her head turned strongly up and away, no meat in your gaze. And from the other side, you still can't catch her gaze. It's always turned so you can't quite get it though her hand is open and seems almost beckoning on that side. Only the liar by her side indicates that this isn't just an odalisk. 
He calls it Sappho. There's not much to make you think that's Sappho. It's hard to see any self-recognition of an artist sculpting an artist. The type of imagery for Sappho is rare, but it's seen elsewhere too. Here's Glare's Sappho. Glare was an important teacher who trained many of the best artists of the later 19th century, Monet, Renoir, Sisley, and his lush colours and full compositional frames is typical of the classicising art of the period against which so much Impressionism revolted. And here, combined with a domestic narrative of a woman at the bath, familiar from Degas, as well as earlier figure studies. His Sappho is turned away from the viewer entirely. She's washing with bowl and arm and drapery over her, over, uh, with bowl and jug and drapery over her arm. And beyond her, the bed. On the bed, there's a liar represented in full classicising detail. That's a proper liar, not like the sculpted ones. And beyond that, a statue of Athene in a column in the top left-hand corner there, bringing some chastity, fortunately, into the scene. Glare himself was a confessed celibate. But I take it that the picture, like Danica's statue, is offering the viewer not much more than a pleasingly plump voyeuristic pleasure. Sappho, on her own, unable to see us who look at her. We might say the liar on the bed, overseen by Athene, is an icon of poetry inspired by erotic passion, overseen by chaste wisdom. Well, you might. Or you might note the fleshy tones of the skin, the pose, the nakedness. Danica and Glare would be very easy indeed to fit into a logic of looking that's familiar to anyone who works on 19th century representations of eroticised women. Sappho for them is associated with sexuality and exposed as a sexualised, objectified figure. Now, in some ways, Danica and Glare are exceptional. We're not going to see this aggressive eroticisation of Sappho again today. But in other ways, they're both very much part of the 19th century repertoire. Because the figure of Sappho appears again and again in the same scene, in drawings and in grand art, always alone. Always in a scene that emphasised that she's deserted or rejected. Sometimes, despite or perhaps because of her abandonment, eroticised. Some people find abandonment erotic. Usually with an indication, however, of her creative force. She often carries a lyre or a piece of paper. An indication that her erotic loneliness is the cause of her poetry and will lead to her death. This is the archetypal image of Sappho, about to find herself faced by the cliff and the leap of self-destruction. She's modelled as a classic romantic artist, if that's not too much of a juxtaposition. Let's look briefly at a few uh, of these many images. I want to begin with a little-known English artist called Godward, who I'm going to come back to. Godward was, was born into a family of bank clerks who hated the idea of an artist in the house. He was disowned and eventually committed suicide, leaving the note behind that the world was not big enough for Picasso and him. Um, <laughs> uh, he was a pupil of Alma Tadema and worked in the late pre-Raphaelite style, well after it had gone out of fashion, which might explain why Picasso sort of stimulated his suicidal despair. Um, here is his Sappho. And regrettably, for those who have a strong sense of history, she's placed in front of a scale model of the Parthenon frieze, uh, framed by flowers, and she carries um, a rolled scroll while she stares down into space. That's the artistic look. Right? So if you want to stand in a bar and look artistic, that's how to do it. 
Here Sappho seems to be slotted into a particularly trite version of the jilted maiden story. The stroll could be a letter as much as a poem. Now, Pierre Narcisse Guérin was uh, a little earlier, and French, as you can probably tell, gets Sappho to the rocks. And she's got a lyre through which she can look moodily. The bare breast motif we're going to see repeatedly. Guérin, one of the great French neoclassical painters, had no difficulty either in constructing elaborate group scenes of classical topics. Here is his rather extraordinary picture of Cephalus and Aurora from the Louvre. You'll notice there are no fig leaves in this picture. You can see both male and female genitals exposed. It shows how restrained his Sappho is. Well, we better have an American one. Well, there's an American Sappho by Frederick Bridgman, known optimistically, I fear, as the American Jérôme, uh, carrying her lyre like a pocketbook over one arm. Uh, She looks down now over the cliffs. Now, looking down overlaps the search for inspiration and the self-destructive urge, the passion of poetry and the passion that leads to violence. Now, this picture has become particularly well-known thanks to Yopi Prin's wonderful book called Victorian Sappho. It's the cover of that book. And it's by Auguste Mengin, absolutely obscure French artist from the last quarter of the 19th century. Uh, It's a rather wonderful picture. It takes the idea of the brooding Sappho faced by the leap of death and takes it to a new level of romantic fervour. Now she's dressed all in black for the first time, whereas the colours of Greece, as you know, are either the white of the drapery or the bright sunshine of the Mediterranean. Uh, she leans on a rock. She stares hollowly towards us, but without focus. Her face shadowed. Her lyre hangs from one hand, and her dark hair and robes flow into the stone. And in a way which is not really possible, I think, anatomically, her face is in shadow, but her bared breasts are in sharp light, again open to our gaze. We can see this as a comment about inspiration or enlightenment from the heart and the darkness of her countenance. But again, the sheer fleshliness of the painting and the exposure to our gaze bring, I think, an erotic erotic rather than an intellectual light to bear. Sappho was famously described in ancient poetry as dark. And here the darkness is both embodied and also made a metaphor. I think his inspiration was probably this painting by Gros. Rather marvellously atmospheric. Sappho's dressed in white and flowing drapery and backlit, but the whole still feels brooding and tragic, with the darkened rocks looming and the storm clouds gathering. She cradles her lyre above her shoulders as she's caught in the moment of the leap. This is the oat romantic version of erotic despair leading to self-destruction without ever letting go of one's art. Don't put the lyre down, you have to go with the lyre, right? The influence of the sorrows of young Werther and other narratives of depressed and solitary artists should seem clear enough. Although sexually, women, sexually transgressive women are so often killed in Victorian fiction, this isn't so much the commonplace of the fallen woman, the prostitute or desperate victim, but rather a grand artistic gesture of passion. So if we want the full-scale romantic landscape, we could go to Edmund Cannelt, a German figure, father of his more famous son. You've got there, I think, beetling crags, stormy seas, stunting bushes, looming clouds, crashing surf, the sublime writ large. And against the cliff, I think you can just about see her there, is there, dwarfed against nature's splendour, you can see Sappho uh, set off about to leap.
Um, or we could do the later uh, self-obsessed variation here by Chasserien from the 1850s, now set on the rocks, thinking about herself, right, her raised arm clinging there, and uh, so we can see both feet rather than her hands, rather worryingly. And here's one of the only women artists we're going to see today, the Dutch poet Heva Koemans, which fits completely into this sequence. There's no difference between female or male representations here. Sappho's grief indicated by the hand to the throat, and she grasps a rolled scroll in her other hand, and she stands against the picturesque wall rather than a cliff, but there's no doubt where she's heading, over the edge. Heva Cummins is right in line with how to represent Sappho, and she corrects her dad and teacher, Joseph Cummins, popular with 19th century American collectors, who painted a Sappho at Mytilene, which is a crowded classical scene of no inverse interest, unmentioned in any critical source. Uh, both men and women share the image repertoire of Sappho, the lonely Sappho, the lone Sappho, as they work variations in a genre. Now, one of the most influential and interesting engagements with the classical world is, in, is offered by Gustave Moreau, and I'm sure everybody here knows his Oedipus and the Sphinx, very famous paintings. He painted Sappho, however, four times in a narrative sequence, and they show his extraordinary palette and his high symbolist representational techniques. In the first, Sappho sits alone on the rocks. She's dressed in brightly coloured, elaborately adorned dress. Her head is turned away in a thoroughly stylized pose of grief. And behind her shoulder, her lyre hangs, and her hair flies up behind her as if in the wind. She's got a chaplet of flowers in her hair. And the landscape is a bizarrely Baroque construction of rocks, but with a tower that goes above them with an oddly winged creature sitting on top of it, a sort of weird, symbolist, classical landscape. The luridly coloured sky, with its orange tints, um, is, is the looming background. You can see where Beardsley and Musha got so many elements of their style from Moreau. Um, the second image has an equally bizarre uh, moment of a lurid, orange-tinted sky, but now Sappho's in plain red, a long flowing robe, and her scarf sort of flies out behind her in the wind, and she cradles her lyre in her arms and stares down, a gesture we've seen so often, linking the leap and the art. Slightly sketchier in style than the former. The third is finished in a quite different degree. It's quite an extraordinary picture. Sappho, open-eyed, is floating down through the air towards her death. She holds out the lyre like an offering or a flying machine. It's garlanded. She's beautifully dressed with a decorated deep crimson flowing robe. And behind, an orange sun sets in a flaming sunset and the sky is darkened into blue evening above. The block of colour that is rock, the block of colour that's the sky, are set off by the sunset and the glaring figure of Sappho. The same column and winged figure lurks in the background. There's almost no sense of downward movement. She, her hair flows gently behind her, as does her dress. It's as if she's skimming along like an angel, rather than hurtling to her death. She looks like a St. Cecilia, patrons of music, beatifically appearing. And the eerie lack of movement is emphasised by the sketch that he did for it, where, uh, where, she's, uh, where the raised arm indicates the movement, and her raised leg breaks the smoothness of that other image. There you can see she's really falling. In the other image, the painting rather than the sketch, you can see she's not. But fall she does, and there she is dead at the bottom in the last of the sequence, crushed 
Rather, she's lying extremely calmly in her red dress, still luxuriously decorated. Her arms are crossed across her chest as if in Christian burial. Her head is turned but looks calm, and her lyre, unbroken, lies by her side. Now, we've seen birds in every one of the other pictures, flapping around in general, but now notice there's a large white bird flying over her. Well, that's not a curious seagull, I suspect, but more likely to be the white dove of the spirit rising in martyrdom, at least iconographically, above the dead saint. So our Christian iconography would suggest from the Victorian period. We have a dark mountain face and brightening white sky, but it seems that for Moreau, the self-sacrificing artist has become a saint of art, martyred to her art. The four pictures create a sequence like those in a saint's life, as if it was, you know, not triptych, but a tetaric of some sort, an ecclesiastical symbolist account of Saint Sappho. Well, the last picture that I want to show you in this section of my paper confirms that the image of Sappho, alone, desperate, about to destroy herself out of passion, not quite mediated by art, had become a commonplace that my quick run-through should have suggested. And this is a picture by Daumier, felt by uh, Baudelaire and others to be the greatest characteristic, caricaturist of, the, of, of his age. Well, here's his Sappho. She's ugly, dark, unkempt, the flowing hair, of course, like so many of our dishevelled heroines we've seen already. And she's being pushed to the brink by arrows, not with his wings and bow and arrow, but as we can see, by brute force, boyish strength. Sappho is deeply unwilling to go. The cliff is like a diving board, slightly too hard, and she's being pushed like a child over the top. If the image of Sappho is forced by passion to kill herself, here's Daumier's neat twist on it. Sappho, less romantic, less pretty, less eroticised, more messy. No question, here she was pushed rather than jumping. Now what I've shown you so far is a couple of dozen pictures and sculptures of Sappho. In every single case, except for Daumier's parodic cartoon, Sappho is on her own. She can be on rare occasions fully eroticised like an odalisque. She often reveals a breast, or even two, in her emotional disarray. But her most profound expression is one of solitude, rejection, desolation, self-destruction. She's modelled partly through the rejected damsel, but mainly through the romantic artist, suffering for his or her alienation, finding in nature a pathetic fallacy for feeling, finding in art a solace that is nonetheless inadequate. Hence, clutching art to herself, she falls to her death. And by the time of Moreau, this becomes a weirdly Christianised narrative of symbolist Saint Sappho. This is a recognised genre with variations and parody. What I find fascinating is not just the romanticisation of a classical figure, but that in none of these images do we get the inkling of an object of Sappho's desire. The leap is usually associated in literature with Pharaoh, a male lover. Her poetry itself is usually linked with a female lover. But in these images, she gets to be a lover without any object expressed. The only hugs are for her lyre. Now, I've written elsewhere about this wonderful, exceptional painting by Alma Tadema. I pointed out there what a remarkable and unique painting it is because it finally shows a Sappho touched by a woman. She sits fascinated by the playing of Alcaeus. 
She's surrounded by her girls in various states of concentration. On the walls of the Exedra are written the names of the girls who are mentioned in erotic terms in Sappho's poetry. Well, Alcaeus on the right there is very good looking. The question I suggested before was by the, is, is suggested by the gap in the middle of the painting. It's a question of desire. Does it represent a choice for Sappho between the girls and the boy opposite? Should we see such a question? Certainly no Victorian ever comments on such a thing. How much more knowing would you like to be than your Victorian readers? Or is that just imposing our views on a historically different image? What I want to do today is to look at how Sappho can appear with any sort of companion. There are only a tiny handful of such images to set against the hundreds that we have of Sappho alone. Outside bits of pornography, of course, like this one by the Belgian smutty artist Rops. It's a drawing for private circulation, and it's only opportunistically labelled Sappho, or in fact, it's called Lesbos, known as Sappho, whatever that means. And if you notice, the Greek inscription doesn't mean anything it's completely wrongly spelt. So this is a bit of just private smut to show around. Let's look at some more public art for sanity's sake. Um, here is an American painting by Francis Coates Jones from the end of the century, from recognisably the same world as Amat Hadema, though without his finish or skill and evidencing Jones's training in France. The contrast with Amat Hadema is marked. Sappho's got her lyre there on the right, and she leans forward to make her point to the two other girls who sit relaxed on an exedra, but I can't see any sexual tension in this picture at all, or a precious little sense of artistic competition or even education. Looks to me like girls having a chat in Greek dress. Weirder style is David's picture of Sappho, Pharaon and Cupid. The mix of allegory and realism is really hard to deal with. Eros seems to have taken Sappho's lyre as she's touched by Pharaon. And while Eros looks on with a saucy, askew glance, Pharaon stares at us rather grimly, and Sappho appears to be in something of a headlock. Um, the, the contact is bizarrely disruptive and, dis and triangulated. The lovers both stare out of the canvas and away from each other. The figures are physically and conceptually awkward. Interestingly, this is a painting that was never seen in public. It went straight to private collection in Russia. And I found only one other painting in the whole of Victorian archive that I've looked. I found only one other painting of Sappho with Pharaon uh, by a chap called Martin Drolling, an academic study from the end of the 18th century, not even 19th century, where Sappho and Pharaon are in a cave, and it's obviously based on Aeneas and Dido rather than on Sappho and, 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 and Pharaon anyway. It's a very small canvas, and I've not found a single critical comment in the 19th, 18th, 19th, or 20th, or 21st century on it, except the one that I've just made. Um, equally rarely discussed is Lafon's painting from very early in the century, Sappho and Homer, which takes us back to those dueling senators in the 1860s. The painting is divided down the middle, uh, like Alma Tadema's, now with blind Homer and two men on the left, and Sappho with two girls on the right. Homer and Sappho have bright white robes to mark their status, and the other guys are all sort of dull brown for the men and girls in grey, colour-coded. The men are depicted as listening to Sappho, with concentration on their faces, and the two girls behind her touch chastely. One with a very young face looks out at us, the other looks at Sappho, and the robes seem caught up in the swirl of performance. They touch, but they're looking in different directions. Sappho has her head turned up and away from the audience in a position that you'll recognise from Greek pots as singing. 
Her mouth is barely open, however. Her hands are on the lyre, and if anything, her eyes make contact with us as viewers. This is clearly an allegory of poetic competition, a commonplace of an agone between the greatest epic poet and the greatest lyric poet, between male and female, war and love, as in the American Senate, where I started. Sappho is accompanied here, but looks to us and posterity, makes no contact with the audience in the picture. Like Sappho in David's picture, her word, her gaze, I beg your pardon, leads her out of the frame towards us and the future. Here we're back with Godwood, our Matadema's uh, pupil, and a picture called In the Time of Sappho. So I don't know if that's exactly Sappho or not, but we'll take it as such. The skin on which the dark ladies sit are taken from Alma Tadema's studio, literally. And if you want to check on that, you can go to the Yale Art Gallery and see the painting there, the one Alma Tadema you have, and in the far right-hand corner, you'll see that skin in Alma Tadema's picture. Equally familiar is the Exedra and the scenery. She carries no sign of artistic performance. She looks profoundly down and away. But look at the figure at the end of the Exedra. There's a bearded herm staring firmly away. It looks like an arguing couple refusing to make eye contact between the statue and the girl. The statue seems to model her alienation. The title suggests we should be thinking about desire in the time of Sappho. Yeah, well, what do you get? Male rectitude, male stoniness. Right? There's a rather pleasing wit to this composition, where the Sappho figure is both alone and not quite alone. With a, uh, she's got a statue for a grumpy, ignoring company. Now, Gustav Klimt had a go at Sappho too. It's an autumnal, evening-lit scene where Sappho, modelled on Greek vases, sits by a huge pillar as a backdrop, fine, modern face, half-lit by the sunset as she plays her lyre. A child is there next to her, touching the shoulder. But it's a child, Pais, as we know from the poetry. The drawing doesn't make it clear if the child is leaning towards the music or actually resting her head on the singer, but it is a child, and it's a dreamy, lullaby-like and peaceful has none of the raw passions we've associated with Klimt's other more famous large-scale works. And there's no eroticism here. This is maternal imagery. And it's very well known from Sappho's work elsewhere. I'm going to end with two final images from either end of the long 19th century. Angelica Kaufman is 18th century. allows me to get one more female artist in and a touchstone. Sappho here is lent on by Eros, her inspirational figure, as she points out her trial verses to him, and they stare into each other's eyes. It's a very familiar allegorical scene. There's no object of love, but love itself accompanies the poet. Finally, after all this journeying, we get to Simeon Solomon, who I know some of you have been studying, and Sappho and Irina in the garden at Mytilene. Two women finally in an embrace, in a heavily floral background, complete bizarrely, with a fawn on the arm of the chair. She was there, of course. It's a sapphic embrace. Sappho's face is both dark and heavily masculine by the standards of the physiognomics of the time. But Simeon Solomon was Jewish, gay, and his paintings, like this one, circulated only in private around the circle of Swinburne and Wilde. This is not really a public image, although you can see it in the Tate now, with modern taste being what it is. His other picture of Sappho image uh, there, is more typical, traditional, beautiful study of a head with eyes closed, lips turned down, as if in longing and pleasure. We have then a bare handful of paintings of Sappho when she's not alone. Some are allegorical, particularly at the start of the century, either with Homer or with Eros. 
The one painting from the mid-century that has Fa'un in it also has arrows in it, making it allegorical. It constructs a bizarrely disconnected interaction where lovers aren't looking at each other. And only the outcast Simeon Solomon, knowingly from the hot days of the 1890s, imagines Sappho in an embrace with a woman. And it's doubly shocking in the light of the long tradition I've shown you. No surprise, it remained a private image. The imagery of Sappho in solitude and the few images of Sappho in any sort of company reveal, I think, two sides of the same coin. Sappho may represent desire, the poetry of desire, the self-destruction of the lover-artist torn apart by feelings of alienation and passion, but it is really, really hard to represent the female object of desire in art, where Sappho is concerned. Even when discourse surrounding painting assume it's a male lover, even then, Fa'on is studiously absent because it might raise the question of some other sort of love. When he appears in David, the physicality of the painting is awkward, unclassical, semi-allegorical. For the 19th century visual regime, Sappho needs her solitude. Now, this is in marked contrast to the written record. Yopi Prince has wonderfully discussed Swinburne's erotic reconstruction of Sappho. Alphonse's Daudet erotic sensational novel, Sappho, has no problem with Sappho, an artist's model, moving between lovers. One sentence I'll quote, she gave herself to him in her entirety in the horrible glory of Sappho. It's easy enough to represent male lovers for Sappho in words. But the visual needs to go elsewhere. Sappho becomes a place to look at desire without an object. Desire itself and a story of the destructiveness of the self embodied in the moment when Sappho's about to leap. Only Moreau gives us Sappho dead and then as a sort of saint. Sappho gives us again and again desire on the brink. Sappho's solitude gave the Victorian visual imagination the form of desire just at the moment of the fall. A powerful image that goes to the heart of Victorian anxiety about self-control, self-expression as a desiring subject, and alienation and art. The art encourages the viewer to tell a story, but in general withholds the narrative itself. That's why Sappho needs to be alone. Sappho with a sexy friend is altogether too disturbing an image in the 19th century. Now, it's become a commonplace in modern queer theory and in the extensive discussion of Victorian sexuality to note the invisibility of the lesbian in the modern sense of the word lesbian. Lesbian desire and lesbian sexuality cannot be represented. It's argued at length in Victorian law, social normativity, religious polemic, or in general discourse. And this is in contrast with the profusion of expressions of female desire and affection for women. As Sharon Marcus writes, paradigmatically, because Victorians saw lesbian sex almost nowhere, they could embrace erotic desire between women almost everywhere. Well, the representation of Sappho in artistic physical media is the limit case that gives point to her word almost. She is, after all, the girl from Lesbos, the lesbian, the figure most easily associated with transgressive female desire. And because of this, I would suggest, that Sappho becomes an edgy, difficult figure 
to represent, a figure who needs special control to maintain the boundaries of representability. There is no place with Sappho for either the representation of lesbian sex, of course, but also, because of who she is, there's no place even for the representation of female eroticism, especially if directed towards another woman. Sappho's object of desire is simply too dangerous to represent because of what it might have to make visible as opposed to suggestive. Desire has to maintain its veils. Sappho's solitude is, I suggest, a speaking silence that goes to the heart of Victorian sexual anxiety. Now, in our current contemporary world, obsessed with sexual objects, there are many images of the lovers of Sappho and sapphic lovers in circulation. In fact, Sappho's rarely alone enough to write anything. But more importantly, um, something else has changed. The sense of the self has different coordinates. Again and again for modern Sappho's, what's at stake is not the form of desire, not desire on the brink, but the splitting of the self into multiple voices, multiple conflicting internal desires. Solitude becomes an echo chamber. Alienation as internal fragmentation. That is the modern condition. But for the Victorian artists, Sappho's desire had to conceal its object. Sappho's desire had to be unfulfilled. Sappho's desire had to lead her to make art and destroy herself as an artist. And the artists again and again try and capture that precise moment of desperation, that moment on the brink of incipient self-destruction. Not the fulfilment of destruction, not the narrative that led to that moment, but the edge. For Victorian culture, Sappho had to be alone. So for visual media, in contrast to verbal media, Sappho has to be a lover without an object, and her pagan erotics is so controlled in art that she can emerge even as a sort of Christian saint. Even when eroticized, there's nothing sapphic about Victorian visual Sappho. The image, it seems, has a differently charged place from words in the cultural imagination. It needs a particular regime of self-control. And as classics, well, it's always the alibi for the erotic gaze. But it becomes increasingly in this period a challenge to Christian culture in the name of pagan desire. Well, the visual Sappho gets left behind, alone on the rocks, dying for art, but not for sex. Thank you. The Frankie seminars and lectures at Yale University were generously endowed by Richard and Barbara Frankie and are intended to introduce important topics in the humanities to a general audience. The preceding lecture by Simon Goldhill was the second of two lectures delivered in the fall of 2012 in conjunction with the seminar Classicism and Modernity. The lecture took place in Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on November 27, 2012.